We um, are still in the first chapter. We're going to take our time going through the book of Acts. Um, Before we get into the text, would you pray with me? God, I'm so grateful for um, the commitment that these people have to your word. I'm grateful for the ways they want to know your word better and know you better through your word. Sometimes it's hard to discern your will for our lives, God. But we know that you have revealed so much to us, so much for us in your word. So keep us obedient students of what you have revealed so that we can know your way and your will for this, for this life. And God, we pray that you'll keep us mindful when we come to the study of your word that you refuse to favor those who seek to accommodate the world around them more than they seek obedience to your word. So may we never come to your word just for information. May we never come to your word just to satisfy curiosity. But may we always come to your word with the desire to be obedient to what you've asked of us. So Lord, as we come to your scriptures, we pray that we may... Hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them as the gift that you've given to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Good. Um, Acts chapter 1. Just a couple more words linking us back to last week. Again, a two-volume work uh, by Luke, uh, the Gospel and the Book of Acts. It's clear at the beginning of both the Gospel and the Book of Acts, written by the same author, two-volume work. Uh, The gospel teaches what Jesus did when he was in the flesh. The book of Acts teaches what Jesus is doing in this age through his spirit that's animating and energizing his church. So uh, in the book of Acts, we we see how, um, how, how God wants us to live in this age post resurrection, uh, in this age. Um, and that's why the book of Acts, as I mentioned last week, in a lot of ways is, is a picture of who we're to be. Uh, so we need to look at the book of Acts and ask ourselves, how, how, how well do we look like our picture? Do we look like our picture? Um, in the book of Acts, you're going to see uh, both the um, strengths and the weaknesses of the early church. Uh, The book of Acts teaches us who we're to be. We're to be bold for the gospel. We're to be witnesses. That word will occur this morning. We'll talk a little bit about what that word means. Uh, We're to be witnesses to the the living Christ. Um, We're to go to all the world in fulfillment of the Great Commission. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. You you see the early church through the power of the Spirit seeking to do that. Um, But you also see how from day one... There was controversies in the early church. You know, every now and again, and there's one here in this city, when, they, when, a, when a congregation names themselves, you know, the New Testament church, I, I smile when I see that because I, I, I know what they mean by that, but I also know I've read the book of Acts, I've read 1 Corinthians, I've read 2 Corinthians, I've read Galatians. There's not many books you can't read in the New Testament and, and see the difficulties that they had. Uh, Paul and Peter had major disagreements. Read the book of Galatians. Uh, You see in the book of Acts, um, by chapter 5, there's a major disagreement going on. That's why we're going to eventually, eventually get to chapter 15, 
where you see the conference in Jerusalem where they try to come together as a Christian movement and settle some issues. So when I say we look like our, do we look like our picture, it's not a picture of perfection. There's never been a perfect age in the Christian uh, history. So uh, we learn a lot from the book of Acts, like we do the rest of Scripture, about who we are to be. Uh, but it has always been somewhat comforting to me that when I look at the New Testament, there's great, great honesty. Uh, and the Old Testament, same way. Think about the hero, heroes of the Old Testament. Uh, David. Yeah, there are some issues with King David. Uh, but you see that throughout the Scriptures. You see both uh, the, the goal, you see the standard, you see that to which we're called as the people of God, the people of Christ. Um, but you also see what we have to battle. Uh, we in the Christian community historically call it the unholy trinity, sin, flesh, and the devil. We have to battle that. We see that consistently in Scripture and throughout history. Um, so it's not, a, it's not a picture of a perfect Christian community. But it is a picture of a Christian community that is seeking to be faithful. Again, seeking to be witnesses. And we'll talk about what that means in a moment because that word occurs. So... Uh, last week, we just got through verses 1 through 5, which was uh, the introduction, Luke's introduction to uh, the book. Uh, I wanna, I'd love to at least get through verse 14. I want us to look at the ascension and then how they kind of gathered as a community after the ascension. So uh, we mentioned last week, again, remember the chronology going on here, because Luke is the one who tells us this. Uh, Jesus is raised from the dead. Luke tells us he spent 40 days, the post-resurrected, post-Easter Jesus, spent 40 days with his followers, his disciples, uh, teaching them about the kingdom. Very specific what he taught, teaching them about the kingdom. Uh, you, you run across that in many places, including the text we looked at last week. He spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom. Uh, we're going to see uh, this morning his ascension. That culminates the physical, bodily presence and ministry of Jesus in this world. Uh, you're going to see the ascension. The ascension occurs 40 days after Easter. Um, Jesus told his followers, as soon as the ascension occurs, go back and wait in Jerusalem. Go and tarry, as the King James says. Go and wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. And we know what that means. Uh, Luke uses it elsewhere, and we see what happens because we've got the rest of the book of Acts. The promise of the Father is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in obedience, what you're going to see today is they do that. After the ascension on Mount of Olives, uh, they go back into Jerusalem and they wait. They wait how many days before Pentecost? Ten. Um, he ascends on the 40th day, according to Luke. And then Pentecost literally means the 50th day. So it's the 50th day after um, first fruits for the Jewish community. It's the 50th day after uh, Easter resurrection for the Christian community. So we know that they faithfully, prayerfully wait for, um, for 10 days. So they are, um, we're at that point now of, we're going to back up a little bit, we're at the point of the ascension. So look at chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together... This is the disciples, and the disciples, you're going to see the makeup of this group a little bit later. These are disciples, these are apostles, these are the folks 
that made up the Jerusalem church, the original church in Jerusalem. So they had come together. When they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore what to Israel? Kingdom. Yeah, uh, kingdom theology is central to the New Testament. He didn't say, when are you going, you know, when are you going to tell us about how to go to heaven? When are you going to tell us about how to do church? When are you going to tell us about how to do evangelism? Um, when are you going to tell us about how to live the spirit-filled life? That's not what they said. They asked a very logical, sensible question, particularly from a Jewish perspective. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, just a little bit of Bible history here. You know what the Jewish people were looking for in Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah, a Mashiach, who would come, be the anointed one, that's what the word Messiah means, be the anointed one of God, who would, in their minds, restore the glory, uh, the earthly glory, of the Davidic kingdom, David and Solomon. That's what they were looking for. Now, we know, looking back on the Old Testament, that we have prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus' first coming, Messiah's first coming, and Jesus' second coming, Messiah's second coming. Um, and, you know, we, 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 we do our work, because, again, we do have the New Testament, and we can look back at those prophecies, and uh, we can either place them being fulfilled in his first coming or being fulfilled in his second coming, yet to be fulfilled in his second coming. Being born in Bethlehem, well, we got that one. That was fulfilled in his first coming. Um, establishing establishing an earthly Davidic kingdom. Well, that has not happened yet, so we place that at his second coming. Uh, that's the earthly Davidic millennial future kingdom. That's the day, that's the age when the Lord's prayer is fulfilled. Thou will be done on earth, just as it's being done right now in heaven. So we know that um, there's a sense in which the kingdom is present in Jesus Christ. The kingdom is extending. Again, what's kingdom? It's the kingship of God that was brought about by Jesus. What is the kingdom? The rule, the reign, the influence of God in this world. Now, does God have some influence in this world today? Yeah, he does. You're sitting here studying the Bible. Yes, Jesus um, is extending the kingdom of God in this world today through his spirit. And, and we see how, how, how um, God reigns in the hearts, hopefully, of his people, which hopefully means he reigns in the lives of his people. And we actually see glimpses of the kingdom in the world around us today when we feed the hungry, when we share the gospel. That's a glimpse of the, the kingdom's work in this world. Um, that's the kingdom being extended. Again, the rule, the reign, the influence of God. That's what the Spirit's bringing about. Um, or, quote C.S. Lewis, we're at work taking back occupied territory. Is what we're doing. The enemy has occupied creation. We're taking it back a little bit by little bit. Um, you've given him your heart. That's the beginning of taking back occupied territory. Now he wants the rest of your life. He wants your entertainment. He wants your finances. That, that's, that's taking back occupied territory. Obviously, the kingdom has not been fulfilled yet. We're still praying the Lord's Prayer probably multiple times a day, I hope. Uh, that, you know, Thy will is not being done completely and perfectly on this earth right now as is being done in heaven. But that day will come. Uh, so we put that with the second coming. 
at the second coming of Christ, all the prophecies left to be fulfilled will be fulfilled. Uh, you're going to see even that referenced in this text about the ascension. So, um, so the Jewish people were looking for a kingdom. They were looking for Mashiach, who would be the king that would establish it. So here they've got Jesus, and throughout the Gospels you see the misunderstandings. Because uh, they, they're thinking all that they know is here's the, the anointed one of God who's going to reestablish the glory of the Davidic kingdom. Because again, they've been under foreign domination for uh, almost 600 years by this point. Uh, and then they were under foreign domination for almost another 2,000 years after this point until the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. So, um, yeah, af after, after the Davidic kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, ever since then, they were looking for someone to come and restore the Davidic kingdom. And they also know that in the Bible, the future restoration of the Davidic kingdom is promised. You've read Ezekiel, you've sung that Sunday school song about dim bones, dim bones, dim bones, about resurrection. If you read that full text in Ezekiel 37, that's one of the many places resurrection is just not there for the sake of you being resuscitated back to life. Read Ezekiel 37 and the whole Old Testament, by the way. That, that picture of resurrection is part of the package deal of the restoration of the kingdom of David on earth. It's part of that picture of the restoration of the kingdom. So uh, that hasn't been fulfilled yet, which, by the way, that's why Jews have a hard time with Jesus. They say, you say he's Messiah. We say, where's his messianic kingdom? And we say, well, that messianic kingdom is in our hearts. That messianic kingdom is being extended through our work. And one day, the earth will be consumed by that messianic kingdom. But in their minds, they, they have a hard time. They didn't understand it was going to be a two-trip deal by God. And that's why it makes perfect sense. You know, don't blame the Jewish people. Help them understand what we're saying. You know, I mean, we say he's Messiah, and they say nothing's changed. There's no Messianic kingdom. Israel has not been restored now, it's been a little different story since 1948, but Israel has not been restored, so where's the Messianic kingdom? Well, again, we Christians, we, we know what we do with that. There's part one and part two. What's not been fulfilled in part one will be fulfilled in part two. So, the, the restoration of the kingdom is what we're all looking for. The disciples here aren't wrong, they just, they got their timetable wrong. Notice what they asked Jesus, because, you know, here he's been raised from the dead. He's looking like a pretty powerful dude at this point. So it makes perfect sense. They say, okay, now, Jesus, so is now when you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? Um, and you know Jesus' answer. Rather frustrating to all of us. Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So he's, he doesn't say, no, there will not be a restoration of the kingdom to Israel. He just says, now's not the time. The time and the season set by God as to when that will occur, don't be too curious about that. The next verse, is what's going, the next verse he's going to tell us what we should be doing rather than just twiddling our thumbs wondering when the kingdom will come twiddling our thumbs, wondering when the Lord's Prayer will be answered. Uh, he's going to tell us that's, that's God's prerogative. 
You remember when Jesus was in the flesh, he said he himself did not even know when the return of the Son of Man will be, when the consummation of the kingdom will be. So uh, Jesus says to them, okay, you're not asking a bad question, but you need to understand. That's, that's God's prerogative. That's God's timetable. Um, as, as Tony Campolo used to say, he's not on the program committee. He's on the welcoming committee. So don't be on the program committee. Just be prepared to be on the welcoming committee. Uh, and the reason you can say that, as soon as he says in verse 7 to his disciples, don't worry about the time frame. Don't worry about the time frame. Um, in verse 8, he says what you should do instead of live in a state of perpetual curiosity about when the, when the time will come. He's going to tell you in verse 8 what you should do. Verse 8 is very, very important. Verse 8 may be the theme verse for the book of Acts. Verse 8, a lot of people consider, is um, the outline for the book of eight. Uh, I mean, for the book of Acts, verse 8. Um, verse 8 also, I want you to notice, is the last words Jesus speaks in his earthly ministry. You know, I would recommend you listen to everything Jesus says, but these are his last final words. He's already spoken what we call the Great Commission. This is another version of the Great Commission. So when he tells his disciples, don't, don't worry about when I'm finishing my work. Don't worry about when Israel's kingdom will be restored. Instead, verse 8, but you, you will receive power. The word power there, again, the book of Acts is about the acts of the Holy Spirit. The word power there in the Greek, I'm going to show you no more Greek than you realize. The word power there in the Greek is dunamis from which we get the English word dynamite. So he says, um, don't worry about the time frame. Instead, you will receive dunamis power, mighty power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Because again, he's sending them back into Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, you will be. This is both, you'll notice, a prediction because it's been fulfilled. Here we are in High Point, North Carolina. This, this has been fulfilled. It's a prediction, and it's also a commission. It's instructions. You will receive dunamis, great mighty power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Notice the geography, and then we'll go back and look at the word witness. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Um, I commend those Bibles to you, I mean those maps to you at the end of your Bible. Uh, geography and history are very important uh, to the Christian faith. We are a history rooted, we are, we're a faith rooted in history, and we're a faith rooted in geography. That's why a lot of us refer to the Holy Land as the fifth gospel. Uh, we are rooted in history, we're rooted in geography. So you need to understand geography here when he says, you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, well, that's the city where they're at right now. And in all Judea, what is Judea? That's the region around Jerusalem. And in Samaria, where's Samaria? That's the region next to Judea um, and then to the end of the earth. Well, you know, if you could ask them today, they'd probably say High Point, North Carolina is the end of the earth uh, compared to Jerusalem. It's come a long way. I don't know if it's exactly the other side of the globe, but it's come a long way. 
Now, in um, the apostles' days, and we're beginning that apostolic age in the book of Acts, in the apostles' days, the end of the earth was either Rome, Rome would have said they were the center of the earth, um, it's either Rome, which was the center of the empire, or I think Paul takes it to mean, which really did seem like the end of the earth, um, Spain. Because the, the world to these people was the Mediterranean basin. And there is some evidence. Um, if you did Second Timothy with me, we talked about it. There is some evidence that Paul might have made it all the way to Spain. People in Spain certainly say he did. Uh, and that would have been the end of the earth to the people in this age. Uh, that's why I said, if you ask them today, they'd probably say, well, maybe high point's the end of the earth. I mean, it's, it, it's gone. But you, you see, and if you look at the book of Acts, that is the, that is the outline. They're in Jerusalem. They're going to go into Samaria. And then it's going to end in the city of Rome, which may be considered the end of the, from Jerusalem's perspective, the end of the earth. So that's the outline of the book of Acts. So here you're given the Great Commission. You're giving Jesus' last words. You're, you're giving the outline for the book of Acts. I, I, co I commend this text to you. Notice he says, you will be my witnesses. We're called to be witnesses. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses claim that name because they say we aren't. You should be witnesses uh, to, to, to the work of Jesus Christ, to the work of God in Jesus Christ. We're called to be witnesses. Now, you need to think a minute, what does that word mean? Witness means you bear, you bear testimony to the truth. Well, first you've got to determine there's some truth somewhere out there. If you don't believe in truth, I don't want you on the witness stand in my courtroom. A witness is someone who bears testimony to the truth. Now, my witnesses, Jesus speaking, my witnesses means, you, mean, means that you bear testimony to the truth of Jesus Christ. That's who you're called to be. That's who you're called to be. It will get you in trouble. If it has not gotten you in trouble, you may not be bearing witness to the extent to which you should be bearing witness. Bearing witness to Jesus Christ will get you in trouble. Because you know what the literal Greek word for witness is? Martures. Witness is a martures. So the other English word that comes from this word is martyr. The early Christian community knew those were one and the same thing. You bear witness to him... You'll be a martyr for him. They didn't even differentiate the terms. Again, think about every one of these original apostles end their lives. Uh, it's mostly church tradition. We got a lot of church tradition about where these apostles went, and we got a lot of church tradition about how they end their life. Every one of them, except John, ended their life in a violent way as martyrs. Now, you may again think being a witness slash martyr for Jesus Christ is something that belongs to a different era. I've said many times in the pulpit here, because it's just history, more people gave their lives for Jesus Christ in the 20th century than any other century of Christian history. That's an obvious. There are more Christians in the 20th century. Uh, there's about 120 of them at this point in Jerusalem. But the more the Christian community has proliferated, certainly the greater number of martyrs we have created. 
And now that we're into the 21st century, all the groups that kind of keep an eye on Christian persecution uh, would confirm that it, it appears that the 21st century will create more Christian martyrs than even the 20th century created. Think about different regimes. Think about Christians living under Islamic rule, radical Islamic rule. In the 20th century, a lot of it was Christians living under totalitarian governments, fascism, communism. Um, so there's a lot of different reasons. You can, you can Google and find the 10, the 10 worst countries for Christians to live in. Uh, there are groups that, that keep up with these numbers. So uh, the literal martyrdom is still occurring. Um, we're not at that point yet here in our culture, but if you haven't experienced some persecution for your faith in Christ, you might need to ramp up your faith in Christ a little bit. If you haven't made a few enemies because of your faith in Christ, you might need to ramp up your faith in Christ. You know, when Jesus said, love your enemies, he was assuming you would have some. Now, if your primary goal in life is to get along and be nice always to everybody and never take a stand for anything, yeah, you may not have many enemies. You are known by your enemies as well as you're known by your friends. Um, I, I won't tell you where this comes from, but I, I, I agree with a lot of preachers who say that at the final judgment, you know, Jesus may ask you several things. I think one of the things he may ask you is, where are your scars? And if you don't have any scars to show, he may then ask you, was there not something worth fighting over? Was there not something worth dying over? Yeah, the word witness means martyr. The first century church knew that. When, when Jesus said to follow me, you've got to deny yourself and pick up your cross. Cross is a symbol of execution. So it's, it, it, we don't have to stretch our theological imagination to know why the New Testament church word for witness and martyr is the same word. So um, this is a picture of who we're to be. Not perfect people, but people willing to be bold for Jesus. People willing to be more obedient to Jesus than accommodating to the world around them. Uh, the world that these apostles were going into, as we said last week, was definitely not in favor of anything they had to say. Because when they said, you've got to accept Jesus as Lord, they were okay with that until they were told that means you've got to get rid of Zeus and Aphrodite and Venus and Jupiter. You've got to get rid of all the rest. And then they came back and said, oh, that's, that feels a little exclusive to us. That's exactly what the, what the New Testament church faced. When you get to the Paul preaching in Athens, particularly, he's having to address a community who has no problem accepting Jesus as divine as long as they accept all those other divinities. And Paul has to make, help them understand that's the issue in the Christian faith. You can't add Jesus to your pantheon of gods. You know, whether you're God's finances or sexual pleasure or whatever. You can't just add Jesus to your pantheon of gods. The ancient world would have loved to have done that. That would have been no problem. They believed in great tolerance. Everybody have their own god. You have Zeus, I'll take Aphrodite, and we just sing Kumbaya and get along. Well, the Christian community, as the Jewish community before them, made that a hard sell to that tolerant age. Because as soon as you say Jesus is Lord... You said Caesar is not. 
And again, the ancient world, the ancient Greco-Roman world, deified their Caesars, remember? Um, so as soon as you say Jesus is Lord, you can't help but go to, to part B on that one. If Jesus is Lord, I, I'm not, you're not, he's not, she's not. So that's why to be a witness to Jesus Christ and to be a martyr was um, pretty much one and the same thing. So here are the last words. If your Bible has the words of Jesus in red, they should have these words in red, even though it's not in the Gospels. Jesus is saying to him, before your sins, you will receive mighty power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end, and to the end of the earth. I did a wedding recently. Uh, it's been a while back. Judah remembers this wedding um, with some people from Sudan. The the groom had lost his whole family had been killed because of their Christian faith. He was one of the lost boys of Sudan. Uh, the bride's parents had been imprisoned in Cairo. For their faith in Jesus Christ. So yeah, don't think this is not happening in our world today. Um, it may not be happening here, and we need to ask, you know, how's it we're getting out of so much persecution? Maybe we're always taking the easy routes, and that 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 helps us keep everybody around us happy with us. Look at verse nine. Okay, there's you've heard Jesus' last words. You've seen what he's told them to do, and now he's ready to go home. Literally, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. The Greek word there, by the way, lifted up means gradually lifted up. Uh, he was lifted up. I say that because I think I did say last Wednesday night, there is a spot in present-day Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives where if you give them a shekel, you can go in that building and they'll show you a rock. And on that rock, it appears to have a footprint, and they'll say Jesus ascended from that rock, you know, kind of jet propulsion. I don't even want to give him a shekel to go look at that. Um, but anyway, it doesn't mean jet propulsion shot up quickly. Uh, the literal Greek word means here he, he gradually was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. When you see the word cloud, think about that word biblically. Um, Anytime in the Bible, clouds frequently think about Moses, Mount Sinai, other places. Think about the transfiguration of Jesus. Cloud symbolizes the presence of God. Uh, cloud in the Jewish tradition is the Shekinah glory of God. That cloud, that presence of God that actually literally uh, manifests itself in a physical way. So they're looking on. He is gradually lifted up, and the Shekinah cloud took him out of their sight. I almost find the next couple verses a little humorous. Look at verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as it went, it's like he's gone and they're still staring, trying to figure out, trying to figure out what's happened here. And while they were still gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Well, again, you know the Bible well enough when you see two men suddenly appear in white robes, probably angels. By the way, in the Bible, when angels appear, they're almost always young men. But here, just think about resurrection, for instance, resurrection of Jesus. So here, um, they're standing there gazing, trying to figure out what they're watching, and the two angels appear. Verse 7, and they say to these people who are gawking upwards at this point, men of Galilee, and remember, Judas is dead. He was the only Judean among the twelve. 
which is probably part of the reason we get to Judas next week, which is probably part of the reason it didn't end well for Judas, the Judean. All the rest of the early disciples, of course, were Galilean. And those of you who've been to the fifth gospel, the Holy Land, you know that the region of the Galilee is very different from Jerusalem. All of all of his other disciples from, were gathered from around the Sea of Galilee. Many of them are fishermen. So when they, the angels knew what they were saying, men of Galilee, they're all from Galilee at this point, why do you stand gawking into heaven? Uh, yeah, they're just sort of transfixed, I think. Notice this, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way. Well, it'll be reversed one day. He will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we know that the return of Christ is basic Christian doctrine. If you're in a church that uses creeds, whether it's apostles or Nicene, you profess he will come again um, to judge the living and the dead. Um, if you're in a church that uses sort of a historical uh, communion prayer, when you, when you proclaim the mystery of faith, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and then there's part three. Christ will come again. So the return of Christ, and there's like 500 verses scattered throughout the New Testament that in some form or fashion points to the second coming of Christ. Uh, the return of Christ is basic Christian doctrine. Now, for those people in the last couple hundred years who want to say, well, it's just a spiritual return. It's just the growing of Jesus' influence across the world. It's just a growing of humans being nicer to humans. It's just a growing of more and more people participating in life uh, based on the Sermon on the Mount and the Golden Rule. In the last couple hundred years, it's not been hard to find uh, theologians, I'm putting in quotation marks, who, who would kind of say, okay, what we mean by the return of Christ is the return of a, or that we finally get to that place where there's a great, great influence of Jesus in the world. Uh, particularly at the beginning of the 20th century, that was common. Well, guess what happened? World War One, Great Depression, World War Two, the rise of fascism, totalitarian governments. So all of those people who at the beginning of the 1900s who said the world is getting better and better and better, Jesus' influence is growing, growing, and growing. Well, the 20th century pretty much kind of killed that theology. Um, so it was not hard, particularly at the beginning of the 20th century, to find people who would spiritualize, I would say over-spiritualize, the second coming of Christ. The New Testament is pretty clear as it is right here in this text. He's going to come again just as you just seen him leave. This is pictured, I don't know how you get around this, this is pictured as a bodily ascension. It's a picture of a bodily ascension. He goes to heaven. He's, he's now, the New Testament says, he's seated, he's, he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, which means he's at the place of authority. The ascension, theologically, is about the rule and reign of Christ over all the universe. It's about the authority. It's being, him being raised to a new level of authority. That's what ascension means. So he's, uh, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, in the eighth chapter of Acts, as Stephen is being martyred, you're going to see Stephen will have a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So he, he physically is ascended, assumed into heaven. So uh, these angels, who are better, than, better theologians than some of our theologians, says this Jesus who was taken up from you in heaven will come in the same way. Not just in a spiritual way, but will come in the same way as you saw him going to heaven. 
So that's the end of the ascension. I'd love to have seen the looks on the faces of these disciples. And I'd love to have listened to their conversation as they return from the Mount of Olives back into the city of Jerusalem. So let's just do a few more verses and watch that happen. Then they returned to Jerusalem because, again, Jesus had commanded them, stay in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. And they do. They return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. Um, Those of you that have been to Israel, you've been on the Mount of Olives. You know, you've got Jerusalem kind of up on a hill, the Kidron Valley to the east, and then the Mount of Olives. So, um, you know, one of my favorite spots on the globe is to stand on the Mount of Olives and look at the Holy City. You look across the Kidron Ravine um, to the the ancient city of uh, Jerusalem. Now, the prevailing thing you'll see is the Dome of the Rock, that that Islamic shrine. But the Mount of Olives is that slope that leads up the mountain. If you go on across it, you go to Bethany, where where, uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. So they go up on the Mount of Olives. The ascension takes place on the Mount of Olives. So then they leave the Mount of Olives, and they go back into Jerusalem. Notice what Luke says. They, they, um, they then return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. Remember I told you who Luke was? He's Gentile, but he's one of those God-fearers you're going to learn about in the, New Te- in the book of Acts. He's one of those Gentiles who has connected himself to the Jewish faith. That's why he was quick to embrace the Jewish Messiah. He knows what a Sabbath's day journey is. You probably don't, because you go further than a Sabbath day journey on the Sabbath. Uh, They know what a Sabbath day journey is. Some of your modern English translations, which I wish they wouldn't do this, they even take out Sabbath day journey, and they'll just insert in it about a half a mile. And that is about what a Sabbath day journey is, a half a mile. We know exactly what a Sabbath day journey. The the rabbis came up with this, or actually before the rabbis, from the law of Moses. They came up with a Sabbath day journey as being the greatest distance you could travel on the Sabbath. We know how far a Sabbath day journey is because they, they discovered that in the law of Moses. The Sabbath day journey... You have to put some text together from Numbers and Exodus. But a Sabbath day journey was the furthest point from the furthest away a tent could be placed in the wilderness wanderings, the furthest point from which a tent could be placed to the tabernacle. That's a Sabbath day journey. About 3,000 feet, about a kilometer, a little bit more than half a mile. So we know the distance of a Sabbath day journey. So Luke is assuming you're not Jewish, um, but he, he's assuming you know the Old Testament scriptures because the only scriptures of the New Testament church or what we call Old Testaments. He's assuming you're reading those. So he's assuming if you're Gentile, you know something about a Sabbath day journey. And it is about a Sabbath. You can literally, it's about 3,000 feet, about a kilometer, depending on where you're at on the Mount of Olives, to get back into the holy city. So they make that journey back to Jerusalem. It's about a Sabbath day journey. Verse 13, and when they had entered, they went to the upper room. You know about this upper room. Probably John Mark's mother's room where Jesus and the disciples gathered for the last meal. Uh, they've returned to it. Uh, it's a spot where it's going to become prominent on Pentecost. Um, there is a spot in Jerusalem today called the Cynical 
is is God a, cynical comes from a, from the Latin word for a dining hall. Um, that's why that's why it's called the upper room. But it's it's a medieval building built over the spot. It, it probably is the spot uh, right outside the city gates. It probably is the spot on Mount Zion, right outside the city walls. Uh, where uh, the disciples ha- had their last meal with Jesus that was sort of a central spot uh, for the Christian community. And it still is a central spot. You see, this is where they're returning to. Uh, this it's gotta, We're going to learn it's got to be a pretty good-sized facility because there may be, maybe, depends on how we read a little bit later, maybe as many as 120 inside this thing. So it's, 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 it's a pretty decent-sized place. Anyway, they, they go back to the upper room, probably John Mark's mother's, uh, home. You'll see later in the book of Acts, they still are using John Mark's mother's, Mark, you know, the author of the, the gospel, Mark's mother's home. Uh, they're still using Mark's mother's home as a place together. So they go back in the upper room where they were staying, and then here comes the list. And, uh, and people skip over list of names in the Bible, and I find the list of names to be very fascinating. Look at the list. Um, so here, here, here they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew. That doesn't surprise you. Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew. Sometimes Bartholomew is named Nathaniel. Uh, that's why when you, when you put together the list of the original apostles or disciples, uh, sometimes the names differ because some of these people have more than one name. Bartholomew is probably Nathaniel. And Matthew... Notice Matthew goes, don't you know something else? James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot. Now, he's, he's referred to twice in the New Testament as Simon the Zealot to make sure you don't get him confused with who? Simon Peter. This is Simon the Zealot. So, you know, inquiring minds want to know what is a zealot. Um, well, a zealot can be somebody who's zealous for something, but probably the use of this term, the zealot, refers to uh, that group in Jesus' day referred to as the Zealots, who, like you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes, the Zealots were another Jewish group who were, who were in favor of using violence to overthrow the Roman rule. Um, those were the Zealots. Those were those, you know, nobody liked Roman rule except the Romans. Nobody liked Roman rule. Well, the Sadducees fared well under Roman rule. But basically... Um, you know, all the Jews in Judea dealt with Roman rule in the, the way they chose to deal with it. But the zealots were those who said, we will rebel. We are the revolutionaries. We, we, will, um, we will use violence. The reason I point that out to you, here's Simon the zealot willing to use violence against the Romans. You saw Matthew in this list? Before Matthew entered his work with Jesus, what was his daytime job? Collecting taxes for who? Rome. Can you imagine that after dinner conversation? But that says something to me about the different types of people that Jesus brings together. I'm sure that the disciples said, we can't do this with both Matthew and Simon the Zealot in the room. Talk about different political aspirations. Jesus had both Matthew, somebody who worked for the Romans, and Simon the Zealot, someone who wanted to kill the Romans, if necessary, to get out from under their rule. But here they are in a room, which all of that is, and well, Simon the Zealot and Judas, not Iscariot, but Judas the son of James, that's another Judas. Now, all of that makes fascinating the next verse. All these with one accord. 
All of these were in unity. They were in unity. They're devoting themselves to prayer. In unity, devoting themselves to prayer. This, in many ways, would have been a very disunited group to try to achieve unity with. A zealot, someone who worked for Rome. Very different temperaments. You got Peter. You got the Sons of Thunder. I mean, you got very different temperaments in the room. So I think it's important, particularly in this age in which we live, to talk about to talk about unity. Now, unity is not uniformity. These are all different people. Unity doesn't mean they all look alike, think alike, act alike. Now, so there there was diversity in the group. Um, there was probably even political diversity in the group in relationship to Rome. That doesn't mean you could have, um, that doesn't mean they could all think about things the way they want to think about everything. There had to be, they, they agreed on Jesus. They agreed on the mission. They agreed on who Jesus was. They agreed on what Jesus wanted them to do. There's, there's massive agreement among these apostles. You're going to get to read the rest of the book of Acts. They, they go out with a common mission. There's massive agreement. Um, but I'm sure there's disagreement there, and these are different people. And again, you're going to see the conflict that arises. In our age, we think unity means we've all got to just say, you believe what you want to believe, I believe what I want to believe, all opinions are created equal, that there's nothing to stand for. Because when you start taking a stand for something, unity is hurt. Well, of course it is. Uh, you're going to see that in the New Testament. There, there's some times Paul took a stand that hurt his unity with Peter. So there's some things that are negotiable. There's some things that are non-essential. And then there's some things that are essential. So if you're going to live the Christian life, you've got to decide in your own heart and mind, hope you use the Bible to do this, to decide what are the non-negotiables, what are the negotiables. What are the essentials, what are the non-essentials. Uh, that's where unity comes from. It does, they didn't have unity because they didn't believe in anything as a group. They didn't have unity because they all thought all opinions were of the same validity. Um, they, there were some things they strongly agreed on. And again, those of us that have churches that use creeds, obviously we kind of say on a Sunday morning, here's some stuff that we see to be essential. You know, you can't say, well, I like 90% of that creed. Um, that, you might, that's your opinion and that's your right. But we say this is, this is where unanimity or unity has to be found in the body. So here's this very diverse group. They're in one accord. You see what they're doing. They're devoting themselves to pray because they're waiting for the gift of the Father. And notice who else is with them. And this is where we'll stop. Together with the women, the women. Um, this has been a group of Jewish rabbis gathered. There would not have been women present. But in this early Christian community, the women were there. We know who these women are that, that are being referenced as the women. These are probably those Marys. Remember all those Marys that were running around between crucifixion and resurrection? So Mary Magdalene certainly is in the room. Um, so the women that have been part of this, you, you know, you go back to um, uh, um, the Gospel of Luke, you're going to be told that there was a group of women that supported Jesus financially. And you're given some of the names. So there are women that, that were very much part of the early Christian community. These women are in the room with these disciples. And Mary, the mother of Jesus. Last time you're going to run across that name in the New Testament. 
But here she is uh, with the earliest followers. Uh, Virgin Mother of Jesus is here. Uh, she's not running the show, but she is highly esteemed, highly loved, highly respected. She's part of the early Christian community. Uh, we have traditions both. Um, you can go to Jerusalem, they'll show you places where she died, or you can go to Ephesus in Turkey and they'll show you places where she died. We have traditions that she died in um, either Jerusalem or Ephesus. It depends on where John went. Uh, John was in both those places. And, of course, Jesus gave his mother into the keeping of John there at the cross, remember. That's why you end up with her dying traditionally, either in Jerusalem or Ephesus. Paul, uh, John was in both those places. But Mary is here. And, it's, and the next thing is even more fascinating. And his brothers. Jesus' brothers. Now, of course, they're half-brothers. We, we've read the Gospel of Mark. Uh, you can go look at Mark chapter 6, the beginning of that chapter, and you're, list, you, you're told there in the beginning he had four brothers and some sisters that for whatever reasons aren't named. He had brothers and sisters. Uh, theologically, they definitely would have been half-brothers. Um, they, they, sh- they may have shared a mother. They didn't share a father. Uh, Jesus had a unique father. But you have these brothers and sisters with Jesus. Uh, the term there, and your, your English translation probably tells you that word brothers can also include sisters. Uh, so the, the siblings of Jesus are there with the mother of Jesus among the early Christian community. What's most fascinating by that for most of us is just a few months before, literally less than three months before, You're told in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, his brothers did not believe in him. They thought he was a little touched in the brain, going around saying some of the stuff that he said. Well, here they believe in him. Now, a lot of us assume in 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 7, when it says, when when Paul is talking about post-resurrection appearances, and he says, you know, he appeared to the apostles, he appeared to Peter, he appeared to 500 people at one time, he appeared to James, now look it up, 1 Corinthians 15, 5, he appeared to James, a lot of us assume that James is the James as in the brother, half-brother of Jesus, that would have got their attention, they might have started thinking about their half-brother differently when he showed back up after crucifixion, something happened between uh, the end of Jesus' ministry and this that allowed his brothers and sisters to become believers. His brother James becomes, you'll see this in the book of Acts, his brother James becomes the head of the church in Jerusalem. Something happened that dramatically changed all these folks. Um, We're going to stop here, but if you look at the next verse, in those days Peter stood up and he preached to whoever would listen about Jesus. Now, that's a different picture of Peter from what you saw in the evening he betrayed Jesus, isn't it? Something radically and dramatically out of the ordinary happened to these people between the crucifixion of Jesus and this period 40-plus days later. Anyway, here's Mary, his mother. We expect her to be there. Brothers and sisters, take note there in the room, because this is a change for the brothers and sisters of Jesus. So, good place to stop. Um, I hope you're learning some new stuff about the early Christian community. Um, but more importantly, I hope you are learning some things about how, 
how he wants us to live. Friends, would you pray with me?